0: Time to talk Formula One on this edition of the KTM Summer Grill, joined once again by Speed Cafe's F1 uh, editor in Matt Koch, and on the line all the way from the UK is someone who has changed her world in recent time from doing expert work as a strategist on the pit wall to lending those insights as a broadcaster and sharing those observations with those of you watching at home. Bernie Collins, Welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's how, lovely to be speaking to you.
0: How have you found that transition and you've done it so well?
1: <laughs> it's been it's been really interesting because I feel like I'm learning a lot about a different side of the sport that you've worked in for such a long time. So you sort of, when you sat on the pit wall before, you seen the TV feed come in, but you didn't really think about what went into making it. So it's been an
2: interesting move. 2023 has been... Record breaking. It's something that I've been saying all, all year because I guess those of us inside the sport appreciate how difficult it is and how historic this will be. Even if at the moment it's difficult to digest, what's your take? What's your take home on on twenty twenty three? Putting Max gently to one side.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those years where everyone's obviously been very focused at the front at Max at Red Bull. But when you look further back, so from P2 to P5, P6, those teams have had one race one's quicker, one race another's quicker. So it's been that midfield or not even midfield, but like front of the field battle, excluding the Red Bull and Max, has been really tight the entire year through it. You know, right until the end, we don't know who's in P2nd in the constructors. And if we can take that forward into next year, that's going to lead to a really good year because those battles behind have been really tight much tighter than we've seen in previous years. And the longer that we keep with this, um, these regulations so over the next two or three years, it's going to continue, I think.
0: What other things have caught your eye this year? Because you are in that, that position of perhaps noticing things that the rest of us don't immediately see or see as, as quickly as someone like you, among those other stories that you've talked about, among the really, you know, the, the competitive rest, if you will, what else has stood out for you in 2023?
1: Well, it's been a year where the development race, I think, has been more cutthroat than it has been in other years. We've seen McLaren at the start of the year, really poor performance compared to what I certainly expected for them in the opening races. And then with really aggressive upgrades, really bring the car forward, so that at the end of the year, it's pretty much always on the podium. Then the opposite appearing to be true of like Aston Martin, where started the year so strongly, and then it appeared that the upgrades weren't working, Um, and through the middle of the year had this massive slump so the development race in these regs seems to be really tight and it seems to be really close between teams getting the car right and in the right working window or the car totally not working at all and the number of teams coming out and saying they don't even understand why it's not working is a bit um like from an engineering point of view a bit shocking really but you know we've got Looking forward into next year again, we've got Mercedes now saying they're going to totally change the concept. Everything in the car is going to change. Totally new car for next year, which is what we expected them to do this year. And then they didn't. Are they going to get it right? Because they've not got it right so far. They've had two goals at this sort of um, regulation that we have now, this like really high performance floor. And they've not got it right. So that's going to be, how's that going to look at race one next year? and as other people develop over the winter again, are they going to be in the right and wrong direction? So from now until February, you don't have a read on whether what you're doing is correct or incorrect. Um, so that's going to, I think, it's, you know, race one is always exciting to see who's ahead, who's behind.
2: And we don't know. What do you think the morale and the, the mindset is like in some of these teams. You look at McLaren, they they were ninth in Bahrain or the ninth fastest car in Bahrain and they finished second and then Aston Martin sort of went the other way during the year and came back and AlphaTauri had a late surge. You know, you said there that teams don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going to be. What does that do for morale and mindset within a team going into each race and going into each development cycle?
1: Yeah, so I think... You know, when I was racing with Aston Martin or Force India, we were very much a back of the midfield team that was outperforming the car, so we were getting really good results for what was expected, and that was very good from a morale side. When you start on the podium, it felt like you'd really achieved a lot at the trackside team, but you very quickly get used to that. So, thinking of Aston Martin specifically this year, they the start of the year massive high results that nobody was expecting I'm sure there was a lot of engineers telling the mechanics this car is quite good and the mechanics not believing it and then you start to rock up at races and suddenly wow the car is good but you'd be surprised how quickly that podium becomes standard and therefore when the result starts to slip again it's a bit like oh you know it becomes very disappointing very quickly so I feel like McLaren will have feel very disappointed with their year even though You know, the results, a lot of the results through the year are very positive. With hindsight, they will feel disappointed and the team will feel a bit low going into the winter. Conversely, McLaren, having had this massive surge through the year, will feel really positive going into the winter. The entire team, the mechanics, the crew, the drivers, all of them. And even like their development team in the factory would go on. Yes, this was wrong at the start but we were quickly fit to turn it around and we know where upgrades are working. You know, McLaren have had everything they've brought since Silverstone appears to, at least from the outside, have worked on that car. Aston, it appears everything they brought didn't work. And it's only when they started to take the upgrades off that it started. So those teams that finish the year on the high, go through the entire winter riding out that high and then hoping for the same sort of success in, in the spring. Um, Sorry, that's the other way around for you guys. I'll, I'll let someone else do the conversion on all of that. But um, it's, it, it, it will, will, will make a difference to the guys in the factory and how they're working and how they're feeling and how the pick crew are training and all these other things that go on during the off season.
0: Given the car advantage that Red Bull had, you know, so early on in, in 2023, that was pretty clear, they could afford then to commit to development on the on the 24 car um, sooner. So what do you see in your mind the early part of next year looking like from a Red Bull perspective and a rest of the field point of view?
1: Yeah, there's lots of different theories out there on whether, you know, fundamentally we never know when a team has stopped developing one car or another car and the regulations aren't changing dramatically across years from a technical point of view so actually teams that are still working on the 23 car that's going to feed directly into the 24 car so I don't think it's as clean cut okay for someone like Mercedes that are totally changing the car it is clean cut but for the others where the car will be an evolution of this year it's not so clean cut as something you're doing on the wind tunnel now isn't going to affect next year's car it's all going to lead the same way um so therefore obviously red bull haven't proved out a number of the what would be upgrades through this year with not developing the car at least externally not bringing obvious things to the car so it you know that might be a slight disadvantage some would say because at least mclaren are proving that their wind tunnel and everything is working as they want um But I think they're going to be in a pretty strong position again next year because they have proven time and time again that in an um, aero-efficient year or in a very aero-dominant regulations, Red Bull with Adrian Newey can do very, very strong cars. So I expect them to be at the front. Worryingly, there's a good chance there's even more of a gap because they've been just doing development for next year um, or they've not felt they've had to push this year, but what's coming from everyone else if you look at McLaren's rate of development god you know like they could be anywhere
0: can we, can we get an aussie update or or um observation from you if you if you will let's let's start with oscar piastri i mean um a lot of hype a lot of um people back here in australia that are, are very pleased with what he achieved what about from your perspective and and perhaps bernie if we can ask your answer relative to lando norris the improvement we saw from oscar during the year and whether you feel like he'll be you know in a position to go more toe to toe with lando in 24
1: I've been so impressed with Oscar Piastri. Just the very basic stuff, even just speaking to him in the paddock, you know, very calm, very head screwed on, very focused on what he needs to do, not getting distracted with any of the other things that come along with being F1. He knew that when he went in this year, the results were going to stand on track and that's what he needed to focus on. I think everyone, you know, there was a lot of hype about Oscar because of how the sign in went last year in particular. Um, Everyone was, you know, to go up against Norris, Norris is obviously doing well in that car. It was a big task. And I think Oscar's really stood up to the question marks there. And he's outperformed definitely what I expected, particularly in qualifying, in qualifying and in sprint races. You know, Oscar's obviously had that win in the sprint. He's done very, very well in qualifying and through the sessions. He seems to build up into the weekend so he always looks a bit down on Norris until right at the crucial minute where it counts Um, and he seems to you know the circuits that he's not been to before that he's doing really well at and building up and you know and qualifying he's right right there but I think I interviewed him in Japan I think it was and in Japan he came out and said you know the one thing he needs to work on is his race pace and he was very honest about that in an interview which I was quite surprised by but that is it when you look at the races he's had through the year, Norris has beaten him in that long run race pace, how he's holding on to the tyre through the stint. But the fact that Oscar very early in the year was fit to identify that and is working on that and he can, he spend the winter going through the races where Norris beat him, um, what he can do to improve his driving, what he can learn from Norris's driving. And I have no doubt that next year he'll be even stronger again. So he's really reason you know, asking questions of the team because he's really standing up to Norris, I think, a lot more than, than others did. And as always, it's going to be, um, you know, to look at the development of those two drivers together. They've obviously got on pretty well this year. And if Piastri starts to really push Norris next year, does that start, does the rivalry start? But um really good early signs from him, you know, fantastic first year. And if he can just keep up that work ethic, which, you know, every sign that he will, I think he's going to really challenge Norris next year. And if the McLaren's better, then you're going to see a few more podiums, hopefully, from him.
2: Drilling down on McLaren a little bit more, obviously that car changed dramatically in Austria. And then again, you know, sort of around Singapore, Japan, when they introduced the second round of, of upgrades. Now, the driver's obviously got to come to, to grips, so too do the engineers in terms of setup and the requirements of, of the new car. What does the strategist do on the wall? How do you adapt because I imagine things like tyre wear and, you know, he's paced through the corners, mid-corner speed, those sorts of things that impact a race strategy, they must change as well.
1: Yeah, and it can be even very basic things change. So, for example, the first half of the year, you'll have gone into qualifying probably a bit conservative on your how you're reacting. So, do you need a second run in Q1 to go through to Q2? All of these things you will have built up 10 11 races of oh we need to run again you need to be conservative, and you get into that way of thinking of a lower field team where you're where you need the extra runs or you're trying to give the driver the most effort and it's difficult to make that switch quickly into oh suddenly now we're quick enough that we're one tire in q1 saving our other tires for q2 and q3 or maybe even you know burning tires earlier in the weekends you've got more race tires it's it's that switch that's often hard to make, particularly in the early races, because your confidence of how the package will perform at all circuits isn't there yet. So you can't just go in with sort of an aggressive approach. But that's the thing I always find the hardest was changing the attitude on the pit wall to how aggressive you're going to be on pit stops, how easy it's going to be to overtake, what your start tyre should be. It's getting the whole um yeah, the whole wall set on this new method of working and really having confidence in, oh, we don't need to do that second run or we can't overtake that car on track or even their pit stops come on, you know having the aggression to race someone down the pit lane and know that your pit stops going to be quicker than them at the end and you're going to get out. So it's just that mindset of being a conservative team and trying to get the points versus being aggressive in the way, like let's say Red Bull are. They seem to have managed that pretty well from a strategy side. Um, and yeah, like you say, it you know, it changes things like your tire wear, like the compounds you can use at the start of the year. I think they were really struggling on soft compounds suddenly by the end of the year. So you sort of end up redoing a lot of your tire model and trying to ignore data from the earlier car, which again in the early races of an upgrade means that you 've got a very limited amount of data to work with
0: Bernie, can we come to Daniel Ricardo now and even Liam Lawson in this in this question firstly, uh, how much do you feel like Alpha Tauri benefited from Daniel's experience when he came back into the game? How how important was that for that car? And most of us feel like Liam Lawson has done enough to to justify a full time spot. I mean, without sounding too kind of patriotic from this region, do you share that that viewpoint? Should he be on the grid in a full time basis?
1: A hundred percent. I'll start with the Liam stuff. A hundred percent. I interviewed him on the grid in Zandvoort. That was his first race in the car, and I have never seen anyone so calm, much calmer than I would be in that situation. You know, I think they'd had a wet weekend up to that and it was the first sort of laps he was gotta do on dry tires. It's a massively different fuel load to what he's run, um, just so much stuff. He's got but your mind's reason, but he was so calm. And I think, you know, it's it's a pity in F1 that some things are led by sponsors, some things are led by deals, whatever. But on pure performance, he should be in a car. He should be in a seat. Um, arguably, that should have been the AlphaTauri seat with Daniel Ricciardo because you would have a very strong lineup of a young guy that's clearly very good and Ricciardo who has um very strong pace and a lot of experience. So that would work really well, you'd imagine, for the AlphaTauri team, that mix. Um, now that's not happened which is a pity and what's going to be very interesting going forward now is what Liam's able to do over the next season you know needs to be in a strong position in order to step into that car we don't know what happened with the Williams seat if it was offered to him and then he said he wanted to stay in the Red Bull family we don't know the answers to those questions Um, but you would like to think that other team managers are sitting, looking at his performance. Going to get in a car and do that that quickly is is no mean feat. Um, so yeah, I I totally think he should. He deserves that spot on the grid, and it's a bit of a pity that he's missed it. But he has given himself one fantastic interview. You know, he cannot do any better than he did in those three races that he had, and it or four races, and it's such a pity. Um, going to Daniel. Um, which I should raise the point I have been criticised for saying Ricciardo and apparently we're meant to say Ricardo. so I'm going to try my best on that Um, but yeah he's got back into his seat I think there's a lot of discussion that he thought he wasn't going to get back into his seat after what happened in the previous years he's brought a lot of experience to that team and a team like AlphaTauri, you know, many years Force India, teams towards the back of the grid that are trying to develop a car, trying to make the car better and improve it, really need the experience. They need a driver that's fit to drive around some of the issues that the car has, that are fit to lead the development direction, that are fit to push a younger driver to do better in the laps or the races or whatever the case may be. And also bring that air of calmness because things won't, won't always go right. So you do need to be able to react to that and do the best that you can and continue to run races where picking up a point or two here or there are very valuable at the end of the year. Um, and it's, you know, it is a pity the races that he missed in the middle of the year with his wrist, but good that he's been fit to get back into the car and finish the year out in that car because again, it would have been a very difficult winter for him having not been back in the car at the end and, you know, had some good results towards the end as well. Um, so I think, you know, Daniel's obviously doing a lot better in that car than he did in the McLaren. And it's got to be building his confidence going forward. Um, So let's see what he can do in the future because there's lots of seats opening up hopefully at some point.
2: You spoke about, I guess, the experience of Daniel. Let's call him Danny Rick for simplicity. The the simplicity of Daniel versus the the, the inexperience of, of Liam Inside a team, and I guess, in the engineering meetings and the pre-race strategy and all those sorts of things, what does an experienced driver give you? One of the things, I think it was Jodie Edels, after the Belgian Grand Prix, was telling us that you know, Daniel's feedback during the Hungarian Grand Prix was perhaps the biggest advantage that they'd had all year in, in that they had got a better understanding of the car mid-race. They hadn't had that previously. But what, what does the team get out of an older driver or a more experienced driver... That they wouldn't get out of a, a Liam Lawson.
1: Yeah. So there is that experience. There's that understanding of, for example, in the beginning of a race, any of the races where you've got pretty high degradation or high track improvement, in the open and laps, it's very unclear often when the lap time's fallen off or staying stable. Is it a track improvement or is it DAG? And sometimes a really experienced driver can give you that feedback that may not be obvious from lap times directly. Or there'd be very good discussions. Sometimes you can hear it even in the radio that were played out. There'd be very good discussions on, is it two or three more laps at this pace? What's possible in terms of overtaking? So with an experienced driver that's lived it a lot, you will to get what you're trying to achieve in strategy, particularly across, is very easy. This is what we're trying to target. This is what the pit window looks like. This is where expected to come out and track, whatever the case may be. And an, an older driver will be, coming back to you with suggestions. So it, who am I dropping behind? Yes, I can overtake them. No, they're going to be tricky, whatever the case may be. You know, we've seen Williams, although maybe the car pace isn't good at times, difficult to overtake. So the older driver's got all of that experience ready. The other thing that, you know, people often forget is their understanding of the rules is way beyond the younger, younger driver just because of experience. So in the past, we've seen things like, people overtaken in the pit lane when there's a safety car or, you know, pushing the pit entry or whatever the case may be. These The drivers that have gone through experience have seen these things happen time and time again. They're also potentially a little bit less likely to get caught up in something and turn one on the opening lap. Because again, that just experience is there and the calmness that when you do... Hit the wrong track position. You come out behind someone. that's difficult to overtake. The sort of settled attitude to making the overtake stick at some point in the race, knowing when it's important to get past and when it's just right. We'll, we'll hold it out a few laps. Um. So you see those sorts of things. Obviously, Liam will bring better reaction time, raw speed. So we've often seen it with a younger driver that they really push an older driver in terms of launch performance just because their reaction time is so good or they're prepared to work so harder. at it. Their work rate is more, um, but you do have to do more explanation of what's happening through your base, what regulations are coming into play, what the position is of others on the track. Their just mind is a bit more overloaded with those basic things that an older driver is on top of. And that takes more workload from the pit wall to keep on top of those things, which ultimately means the pit wall's not doing something else.
0: Bernie, our, our audience will find that fascinating, that work on the pit wall that you're just talking about there. If you wouldn't mind, just share with us what it's like you know, when you're in that role as strategist on the wall, when you've started the season with a car at one performance level, it obviously evolves one way or the other as the, as the year progresses, and, and how you deal with modelling around that and, and so on.
1: Yeah, so we try, we've got several models, like the Formula a base strategy is, is reasonably simple in you've got a lap time, you've got a tyre model for each tyre. So in that you've got the pace difference between the tyres, you've got the degradation of each tyre and you've got the life. Those are your three things that go into the tyre model. And with your pit loss, which you've worked out, you can work out what the fastest race is. So you can work out, is it a one or a two stop, which tyres it involves, whatever. So you can work out your your fastest race if you weren't interacting with anyone else. And then the difficult bit is to include the interactions with everyone else. And to do that, you need to know your pace relative to everyone else's pace, how fast or slow you are. And it's not just the front of the field, which everyone thinks of, but also the back of the field. So how quickly are you going to have a pit window on the slowest cars, for example? How much trouble are you going to have overtaking them if you come out behind them? And to get that sort of, as you say, as your performance, the first race of the year is always the most difficult because you've got the least data. You've got data from testing, but you don't know everyone's fuel load. So the first race is always the one where there's a big question mark on the pace of each car. And then from that, you sort of end up with this rolling average of what people's pace was over the last few races. You don't want to go too far back because you want to include any new upgrades they have. But you want to include a range of circuits and turns to make sure that just if they had a strong or bad weekend, you've not really skewed the data with that. And so it's the pace of your car and other cars is actually quite difficult. And that does affect, like I say, when you can stop, who you can overtake, when the leaders are going to come through you that you're going to get your lapping events. All these things that we try and avoid, particularly as a midfield team, because that costs you so much time. Um, and often that's where strategy... At least pre-event goes wrong is that difference in pace between you and the others, um, and then the tire model stuff. Obviously, it, it, the tires are not um, not a given condition. So the track temperature might move, the wind might move, the uh, the brakes might be running slightly hotter, which is in you know increasing the temperature of the tires. There's so many things that go into affecting tires, and there's such a delicate balance that although you have one tire model, you need to be really ready to adjust um higher deg lower deg whatever the case may be so the race on the pit wall is a lot of trying to make sure your model is within the parameters that you set originally um and then complete continuously readjusting so readjusting to you know by the end of lap one people will be in a different position to the grid so completely every every lap you're readjusting this model and checking that the assumptions you have are still correct and you're trying to optimize what you do going forward so although sometimes people look at like a boring one-stop race and think oh that must have been quite easy on the pit wall we actually make decisions like every lap what would we do now if there's a safety car what would we do now if we had an accident you know all these things so there's lots of decisions going on all the time
0: your insights during the broadcast have been superb during the year i know the season has enabled you to take in some races at home as well, which has probably been nice. Uh, maybe even down at the pub, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but are you missing the pit wall? That's the obvious question.
1: Oh, yeah. I Like, I love my role in the pit wall, and I loved the influence I had on the race. You really affected, okay, just for one team, but you really affected the results. You were really felt part of this team unit. Um so if it wasn't for so many races, I wouldn't have left the pit wall. I really enjoyed it. Um, so yes, I do miss the pit wall. And sometimes I look at it and I think, oh, I would quite like to be there. But sometimes, you know, it's a really tricky race. And you're like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not there. <laughs> so it's a bit of a mix. Or, you know, the ones where I'm fit to, you know, go to a wedding or stay at home or watch down the pub or, you know, just switch the TV off. And then I've got no pack up to do. I'm just already at home. Um so there's been a real mix of emotions in that. But I do miss the adrenaline of getting on the pit wall, making those decisions. Um, so, yeah, I'm not saying never, but um, it's, it's been very interesting to watch from the sidelines.
2: What's more nerve wracking, making that strategy call or sharing your opinion in front of tens of millions of people on television? Making the strategy call because
1: I didn't really think about how many people were watching on TV. So when I first got to the TV, you know, when I first started with Sky, I knew a lot of the Sky presenters because we travel together, we get on flights together, all these. So I knew a lot of them. So it felt like a very friendly environment. And then when you're in the comms box, there's like three of you in this box, and it just feels like three of you chatting about the race. And it was only really during that first race I did that I was getting text messages from friends in America or messages from friends in Australia. And I hadn't really thought that the commentary went that far. I just assumed it was like Sky UK, so it's not going anywhere else. So maybe it was better that I didn't know that in advance. But definitely the the pit wall feels like there's more pressure on you.
0: Well, keep doing what you're doing because we're the ones who gain. It's been superb to get you on um, the KTM Summer Grill. Thank you so much. Enjoy the festive season and all the very best for the new year. Yeah,
1: thank you so much. You you guys as well. See you next year.
0: There you go. We're going to get Bernie Collins back on next year. That's an absolute (laughs) must. We'll, uh, We'll be back tomorrow, of course, with another very special guest here on the KTM Summer Grill. Just check back in with the Speed Cafe website. You could be a winner each episode of the Summer Grill. KTM are giving you the chance to win a bar stool, a mug, and this race-inspired clock as well. So there's more good reasons to tune in and hear from some of the stars of world motorsport here as a part of the KTM Summer Grill. All you've got to do is click on the link below, fill in your details, and you could be in the running to win.